fact that they were always angry was because maybe I was their student. I don't know. It could have been. So let's, uh, let's open up our Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 7. Um, we're not going to read through uh, because the, the, the story of the plagues goes through three chapters. We, we're not going to do that. We're going to just look at uh, a portion of chapter 7. But what we need to do is we need to pray. Amen? Uh, Father God, um, you know, uh, the truth of the matter is um, it is different for us. Um, than the people of Israel, because you, um, as uh, as your spirit, in your spirit, the Holy Spirit, he, he doesn't sit on us. He indwells in us. That's a different story. Not only that, the book of Ephesians tells us that you're sealed in us. That means nothing can uh, threaten what you have implanted as a deposit, guaranteeing the future that you want for us. Lord God, I pray that you would commandeer and conquer those recesses of our heart, Lord God. Every one of us has to be conquered in, in various areas. Our fears, our insecurities, our inconsistencies, our resistances, our distrusts. Please, Lord God, I pray that you would overcome us. I pray that you would rise yourself above us, Lord God, and show us your beauty and transform us, Lord God, because we see your beauty. I read it the other day, Lord God. The more clearly we see your beauty, the more we will reflect it. So I pray that we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, we're going to read from verse 14 to the end of the chapter. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let my people go. So Pharaoh, in the morning, as he goes out into the water, wait on the banks of the Nile to meet him. There, Take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to you this morning. Let my people go so that they may worship me in the desert. But until now, you have not listened. This is what the Lord has to say. By this, you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish of the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take the staff. I'll stretch it into your hand over the water, over the streams and the canals and over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will be turned into blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the wooden buckets and the stone jars. Wow, that's crazy. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and all of his uh, officials struck the water of the Nile, and all of the water had changed into blood. The fish of the Nile were the first to die. The river smelled so bad, the Egyptians could not drink the water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same thing by their secret arts, and the Pharaoh's heart became hard. Wow, that's crazy. God does this amazing thing, and their response is to mimic what God has done. And this is their reason for resisting God. But what this really kind of tells me is they had already determined to resist him, God. And this was just the evidence that they used. You understand, sometimes resistance really isn't the thing that tips the jar, tips, tips the scales whether we're going to believe him or not. Sometimes we come up with evidence for disbelieving God when we've already made our minds up to do so. Does that make sense? All right, uh, but the Egyptian magicians did the same thing, and this, from their secret hearts and the heart, Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went to his palace and did not even 
It did not even take this to heart. And all of the Egyptians dug along the Nile to drink from the water uh, because they did not drink from the water of the river. Wow, that's crazy. Um, in this portion, we're going to see a God who is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That means he is a sovereign God who reigns. And I'm going to tell you something. The truth of the matter is when we think of God in this manner, it's, it's, I think it's fairly common for us to get a little bit discomfortable. It's a little bit uncomfortable. We like the idea of being co-partners with God. Is that just me or is that other people here? I like the idea of God being there. I like the God of power. I like the God of mercy. I like all these aspects and attributes of God, but I also like to have my hands on the wheel. You know what I mean? It's something that I'm really accustomed to, and I don't think it's just me. I think it's everybody. I think it's everybody. When we think of the world, uh, the word uh, world ruler or sovereign, an absolute control uh, leader, most minds lead toward the idea of a tyrant. And you know why that is? Because that's the only example we've ever seen. When someone has unchecked and absolute power, human beings always have the same tendency. And what is that? To overuse their power and use it to exploit and to demean and belittle and to enrich themselves at the expense of other people. It's just kind of what human beings do. Even the atheist Bill Maher one time said it in a recent interview. He's like, I've said this before and I'm going to say it again. Human beings are not good people. And that's the truth. But the fact of the matter is we want to resist it. Resi we want to resist that idea. There's probably people in their mind, subtly, that voice was like, no, 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 that's not true. We are basically good. I'm basically good. No, no, no. You're a person who's at war with God apart from grace, and you may do good things. There's a difference. Um, this is a common source of hostility, this idea that God is a tyrant. Uh, it is a human inclination for us to believe that uh, that God is that 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 God is, is over us in such a way that he's going to take from us all that is good, all that is pleasing, all that is pleasurable. If I give myself over to him, he's going to be a tyrant and he's going to exploit me. And I think that that's a real fear. And you know what the truth is? It's still a fear for Christians. It's one of those things that we were kind of born with, we got saved out of, but we still have to kind of process through. We have to journey out. Isn't it true? I mean, realistically, God delivered me from so many things in the very beginning. I mean, powerful, powerful things. But one of the things that I realize is he didn't take everything away from me. There are still struggles inside of me. Struggles what I do with my time. Struggles what I do with my money. Struggles what I have to plan for my future. See, I like the idea of being in relationship with God, but it's quite frightening sometimes for him to be in charge of all of it. But one of the things that we see is that God is Lord. He is the sovereign master. There's a parable that Jesus talked about. It was called the parable of the tenants where he talks about God or the Lord of the manor giving to his people uh, a, a portion of, of value, of treasure for them to invest. This is a, a microchasm of what God does with all the people of the earth. He gives to them a certain amount of treasure, something to be invested. And if you remember correctly, the last servant took from the Lord, but instead of investing in the light of the Lord's, man, uh, the Lord's uh, and master's generosity and favor, he chooses to do what? You remember what he did? 
He hid it. He hid it underneath a rock. Why did he do that? Well, when the accounting came and the Lord said to him, well, why did you do this? I've given you this thing. Why would you choose to hide this gift that I expected for you to invest and just kind of like hide it? And he said this, I know you to be a harsh man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not planted. So I was afraid and I hid what you gave me here. So let me keep what is mine and you take what is yours. It's more than greedy. It's literally usurping. It's saying, hey, listen, you've given me life. This is my life. I'll give you what I think I owe you. And the only thing I owe you is what you asked for. That's it. And uh, you, you know how that kind of ends up in that parable. He says to you, you're a wicked servant. Please depart from me. You're out. You're not in relationship with me. Go back out into the wilderness to this place of darkness. And I think that that's kind of a scary parable. But it kind of, uh, it, 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 I think it reveals the attitude of, of some people. I think it's a common attitude of people where they think, listen, man, if I give over to God everything, what's going to be left for me? If I'm really going to be someone who's going to have to turn my cheek when someone slaps me, then I'm going to have to live this life where I'm just going to have to be insulted and walked upon like, I, like a rug. Or if I surrender and serve other people, well, who's going to serve me? If I'm going to be the person who blesses and loves the people who curse me, then all I am is I'm going to be trampled underfoot. Isn't that sometimes some of our fears? So I think to myself, this is a perfect place for us to start today. The Pharaoh is the antagonist in this drama. That means he is a physical representation of an attitude. This isn't just a story between God, Israel, and Egypt. It's a bigger picture. It's a picture that kind of goes on throughout all history. The Pharaoh is the perfect example of an unrepentant, self-important, a person who will not surrender. He is responsible to no one, and he is essentially his own God. He is this, and, and I thought to myself when I wrote this down, that this is the most fertile ground for absolute destruction in a life. If I want to resist God in this way, or I want to uh, hold on to attitudes like this, this puts me at odds with God, and I'm going to show you how. God has shown us in the past few weeks that he is someone who carries our burdens. He cares for us. He's aware of what you're going through. When you pray, you're not just praying into the ether and nobody's listening. He is listening. He is involved. He is watching. Not only that, he demonstrates that he's someone who hears us. That's more than just listening. It's someone who hears us is like, man, I get it. I understand it. I want you to trust me in it. I am at work on your behalf. He is someone who hears our laments. He is someone who hears our cries for help. And sometimes in life, you can have cries for help. It's painful. Life is painful. There's a lot of times we lose things. There's a lot of times that we're hurt. There's a lot of times we've been robbed. We've been injured. We live in a world where you are prone to get hurt. Is that not true? It's true. And God hears these things. Then we see that God not only hears, he calls us out and he calls us to. That means I hear you, I know what's going on, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to reach into your life and pull you out. Let me give you a perfect example of that in the life of Jesus. Jesus is teaching uh, the people in, in a city right outside of Galilee. 
and he's got maybe about 25 or 30 people, and a person with leprosy sneaks into the midst of the crowd. Do you remember the story? Well, there's a problem with that. You can't do that. By law, you're not allowed to kind of enter into a place where people are gathering. You're unclean. So he sneaks in unaware, nobody wears it, gets right in front of Jesus, bows down, and he says, if you are willing, you can make me whole. You can cleanse me. Remember what Jesus did? He reached out, and I'm going to use Jacob here. I'm gonna, he goes, I, I will. Now, we think about that. We're like, wow, that's kind of cool. But sometimes we don't, if we don't do the investigation, we miss the issue. God is someone who sees the pain of this man, and he's willing to enter into it. His compassion prompted him to enter in. When Jesus touched the man with leprosy, what he was doing was, I am sharing in your pain. How? If you were a person with leprosy, if I touched you, I now share in your uncleanliness. That means you, if you're with me, you now by law should go, well, that's a deal breaker, buddy. You're with him. You've touched him. You've connected yourself to him. I got to go because I got to follow the rules and I got to protect myself. Jesus was saying, I see your pain. I see your loneliness. I see your shame. I see your confusion. I see your loss. I feel your emptiness. And I'm willing to enter into it. See, that's what Jesus has done for us. He has entered into our condition. We have all suffered from sin. Our sin and the sin of another person. Every pain problem, all the problems in the world have been caused by sin. And God entered into it and he shares in it with us. That means I am, I'm going to bring you out of it. Not by just showing you the right way. I'm going to pull you out. Let's go back to your story. Our story here, sorry. All right. So what we see now is the God who is an unrivaled master over all creation. This is a good part. God is faithful to his beloved. Absolutely faithful. He wants us to believe that we can entrust ourselves to him. Well, like I know, and I think you'll agree, it's easy to entrust himself, ourselves to him when things are going well. But it's not so easy to entrust him when things are not going well or there's a real possibility that things could go bad for us. Then what we have a tendency to do is to try to take back control and do things our way. Isn't that true? So this is what's happening here. I want you to know that God is faithful to his beloved but I also want you to understand that God is unwaveringly committed to his purposes and his glory. Did you hear that? God is committed to us, his beloved. He is faithful, he's true, but he is committed completely and unwaveringly to his own will. And when I say that, that also strikes up inside of us this way. I don't like that. That means he likes something more than me. It almost seems ungodly or prideful. But the truth of the matter, if God is good, he has to be committed to his purposes because his purposes are always good. They're never wrong. So he is committed unwaveringly to his purposes and his glory. He is unwilling to share his throne, period. He will not share his throne. Anything or anyone that seeks to usurp his authority or replace him as king has placed themselves in a dangerous position. Opposition to God, in effect, is a person signing a declaration of war. 
I want you to get that. When I say I will not or I resist, I am essentially saying I am at war with you. There is a hostility in that, uh, in that uh, atmosphere. One thing that we need to understand about God as I read through this is he is a jealous God. He calls himself El Cana, which means consuming fire. I remember there was a time when I talked about this when I first started, and there was a young lady who came up to me and said, that doesn't sound very godly, that God is a jealous God. And I remember I said to her, well, do you love your mother? Do you love your father? She said, yes. And I said, would you be happy if another man or another woman tried to steal your mother or your father from the family? And she said, no, I guess I wouldn't. That's the same kind of jealousy that God feels. It is a burning, burning jealousy, and that's dangerous. In his covenant with Israel, Jesus, Father God, the Holy Spirit, write as first priority, do not worship any other gods before me or equal to me. Why? For I, the Lord, whose name is Jealous, am a jealous God. It means he is consumed with violent passion for what is exclusively his. See, we have to understand that we are all children of grace, but don't treat the Lord with lack of respect. It is dangerous for us to be too carefree and careless when it comes to our relationship with God because he is serious about what is rightfully his. And if I continue, God is a God of patience. God is a God of kindness. But I know this, even if I'm a professing Christian, professing Christian, and I say, no, I will do these things, what I'm doing is I'm setting myself up for some serious consequences. Remember in the book of Galatians where God says this uh, through Paul, he says, he goes, don't worry, God cannot be mocked. A man will reap what he sows. If he sows to please his flesh, he will reap in his flesh death. If he sows to please the spirit, in his spirit, he will reap eternal life. What does that mean for the Christian, the one who professes Jesus Christ? Are they lost in the end? I don't think I'm qualified to make that statement, make that judgment one way or the other. But I know me as a Christian, if I choose to use something that robs God of worship and he tells me over and over and over and over to release it and let it go, what I'm doing is I'm bringing death into my life. Let me give you an example. We'll be very, uh, well, kids are here. So if I choose to misuse certain aspects of my, um, well, we'll use a different example. Um, if I choose to be dishonest in business, what I'm going to do is I'm setting myself up for the possibility of losing reputation. I'm setting up the possibility of the law coming against me. If I'm a person who finds security in my job and what I can provide, what that means, I give all of my time, my effort to these things, but what can happen is I will neglect my family. So I make a success in my business, but I lose connection with the ones who matter to me most. If I choose to not be a nurturer, to love my wife, to listen to her, to try to serve her in the way that is beneficial to her, what I will find is after 25 years of marriage, my wife will say to me, I do not know you. And I will have an empty marriage. If I misuse, I'm going to say it, misuse my sexuality. What will happen is I will lose the mechanism that God has given me 
to be connected to the one I'm supposed to be connected to forever. You get it? So if I choose to please my flesh, I don't care if I'm a Christian or not. That God keeps giving me time to let it go, let it go, let it go, let it go, and I don't let it go, eventually I'm going to reap a form of death. See, we have to stop thinking of things in terms of where I go after I die. Worry about where you are today. Worry about how you're to live life here and now. See, salvation and eternal life isn't something we wait for. It's something we live in now. And it continues on forever. Does that make sense? All right. So God says that he is consumed with violent passion for what is exclusively his. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is walking through the streets of Athens, and he sees all the benefit. These are smart people. This is a culturally rich place. And you know what he sees? All the memorials in the temples of the gods that they believed that made the Greeks better, that made them heads and tails, these these bastions of culture. And they're like, this is the God who did this, and this is the God who did this, and this is the God who gave us this and this. And it said that he burned with passion. You know what that means? That he was sick to his stomach over the worship that was given to these fake, non-existent idols when it belonged to God. Has anyone ever loved anybody in this room and found out that they were giving their love to someone else? Remember that feeling in your stomach? That's the feeling where you want to kind of throw up a little bit, but you're kind of bitter and angry and it like actually hurts you. That's what it means to be a consuming fire. And it is a very dangerous place to be when it comes to God. All right. It is one of the things that I want to say is this, is um, I, I want us to remember that when we're dealing with God, I want you to think of it in terms of this. I want you to imagine that you love your husband and your wife. You go to work in the morning. You kiss them goodbye. You go about four blocks, and you realize you forgot your phone. Okay? Now you go, I got to go back to the phone. I got to go back to the phone. And as you turn the corner and you get by your house, you see your wife or your husband greet another person at the door, embrace them, and kiss them, and bring them into your home. What would that make you feel like? Oh, you know what it would make me feel like? Murder. I'm not kidding you. It would make me feel like murder. Someone will be hurt today. So I, I assure you, even though God is not imperfect like me, this is what he sees when we give our hearts to someone else. I want you to think of your children. If someone is trying to entice them to, be, to, uh, uh, to kind of be surrendered to them, what would you do? What would be your action? Well, this is God's action. He is now fighting and hopping mad. All right, what happened in Egypt was meant to be a cautionary example that was to be spoken about for generations after the Exodus. The Exodus happened anywhere from 1350 B.C. to 1250 B.C. But the historical record tells me, and this is scientists, that the empire was in an absolute free fall after the year 1100. That means most scholars believe that something happened in that time where the Egyptian empire was never a world power again. What happened in Egypt 
was to be spoken about. And if you were a Jew, every time you celebrated the Passover, you would hear this story over and over and over and over. And unfortunately, because we're children of grace, we don't investigate these stories. We leave them to Sunday school for kids to learn. But when we do that, we make it into mythology when it's really a cautionary tale for us. It's meant to show us something. It's supposed to alert us. It's supposed to open up our eyes and make us aware to be very careful with the things that we hold in our hands because we are born to be idolaters. I want you to get that. We are born to be idolaters. We are saved out of idolatry. All right, so God has accepted the challenge of war. And I want you to understand that it wasn't against Egypt that he was at war. You think to yourself, well, God's going to destroy an entire nation because of this? It doesn't seem quite godly. But the fact of the matter is he wasn't fighting against Egypt. He was fighting against the usurping false gods of the day. He was saying, I will be at war. I will be against the gods that have seduced and enslaved my people. They have stole my devotion and they robbed what was exclusively meant for me. So he violently opposes them. And because the Egyptians had attached themselves to these idols, they suffered collateral damage. Do you understand that? See, he wasn't fighting them. He's like, let go of these things, walk away from these things, worship me and worship me alone. But they said no. And he said, I will fight them, burn them, destroy them. And if you clutch them close, you will be injured with them. So I want you to remember this. All right. So the first wave of God's attack was on Hapi, the Nile River God. The Nile River was what made Egypt, Egypt. It was the source of immense influence and attractiveness and power. When he causes the water to turn to blood, I believe it is a symbolic indictment. He's saying that you have used this great gift to exploit and to trample the people who have not. He's like, hey, I gave you this as a gift and you used it to enrich yourself. You used it to rob people. So I'm going to turn it into a source of stinking, rotting blood. Why? So that the nobility, the elite class, the rulers can increase their can increase their influence, and Egypt can say, "We're better, we're stronger, we're above, we're not like the rest of the world." So God fights and wages war against the river. But now He's not done with the river. His second wave of attack. We don't know when this happened. Most likely, this happened over a six-month period of time, because every time God brings a judgment and destroys one of these idols or fights against them, He goes back to Pharaoh. He's like. Are you paying attention yet? And Pharaoh keeps going, no, I'm my own God. I don't owe you any explanations. I don't have to answer to you. I'm in charge. This is my life. I rule. And he says, think that through, and then the next one comes. This is how a heart is hardened. So the next wave now comes against the God called Heket, who was the God of fertility. No, she's the goddess of fertility. And what does he do? He uses the Nile River once again to be a place where frogs come up out of water and pollute the ground. Why? What's the deal with the frogs? Well, first of all, the river that the Egyptians believed was an endless well of wealth and prosperity now became a stinking breeding place of filth and corruption. 
The frogs came up out of the water, ruining the order of the nation, the cleanliness of the nation, and the comfortability of the nation. And the entire nation now was at unease. There was no longer rest for anyone. Now, I don't want to take this too close because there's similarities here, but we have to pay attention to this. I think we're nearing a time when God is going to rise up again against the idolatry of this world. And I think it's going to happen in our day. God then aims his guns at a god named Geb, the god of earth. He brings life up from the dust. They consider themselves the masters of farming, farming, but God reminds them that sin has cursed the earth, and they themselves are not masters of anything. They are created being. And because they are created being and made of the same substance as the earth, one day they will return to the ground from which they were created. Can I tell you something? That is a powerful calling too. When I make my life primarily about me and my desires, I forget I was created for a purpose. And the purpose was not mine exclusively. God is not here for me. I am here for him. And when I surrender to that, that's when my life becomes benefited. You understand? When I surrender to his love, his correction, his lordship, I begin to live a better, richer life instead of doing what most are inclined to do, believing that if I do that, then I'll have nothing for myself. He wants you to remember, from earth you came and earth you will return. You know what that means for you and me? Be careful where you're seeking your anchors into this life. You know what? We can own things. We can work. We can go on fine vacations. We can enjoy the world. We can have fine meals. But remember, these things are good, but they're not the best. They're gifts from the one who is the best. So we have to remember to seek him first. Be grateful to him above all these things. Let's keep going on. So God, still being at war, now aims his gun at Kefri, the god of creation and rebirth, and he brings flies and he swarms the nation. But what does the Pharaoh do? The Pharaoh doesn't listen and stop. He doesn't repent. He doesn't turn around. He doubles down. He tells, he tells Moses when he sees him, you know what, I'm sick and tired of seeing your face. I don't want to see you no more. Boy, that's a resistant and hardened heart. That's what sin and idolatry has the ability to do. It makes us see but not really understand what we're seeing and hear but never perceive what we're hearing. These are dangerous things. God says idols are death and anyone who worships them will become like them. They'll have eyes but never see and they'll have ears but they'll never hear. That's how people, the people of God, rejected Jesus. You get that, right? One of the saddest verses in all of the Bible is when he says this. He goes, God came to his own, but his own received him not. How could they worship God this whole time and see him standing in front of them and say, no thanks, we will not have this God to rule over us. So these are cautionary tales for us to hear. All right, why does he affect the nation with the plague of flies? Because 
It polluted their food supplies, which they believed they had in, in absolute, and they were, they were heads and tails over every other nation because they never, they never suffered less. They thought that they were better because they had more. You know, there's things that we take for granted that the entire rest of the world has no, and listen, I'm not doing this to make us feel bad. I'm just telling us to be very careful with how we live in the epicenter of idolatry. We live in a place that tells us nothing's ever going to be for our needs. Look at all the abundance we have. Yeah, every nation has abundance until God takes it from them and he robs us of it. So I think it tells, he's, he's telling Egypt, you have put your faith and your security in your food supplies the people who prided themselves on beauty because that's what they did. They loved to look good. They loved to be tanned. They loved to be fit. They loved to be dressed up well. And you know what he did? Now you have to hide your heads in public because there's so many flies in the air. You have to resort to staying in your house for hours at a time because to go outside, the flies would be up your nose and in your ears and in your hair. So the next one he goes after is the god called Hathar, the god of protection. And what does he do? He strikes the cattle and the livestock and kills them. What God is doing there is he's striking the finest of food. He's striking their strength in transportation, their supplies, their farming, their military might. Now God goes against Isis, the god of medicine and health. What is God doing? He is he strikes at and affects the aesthetic beauty of the people. How does he do it? He gives them seeping boils on their skin. These are scary things. These are scary things. Remember this. Nothing matters. Nothing matters if you lose your health. He is saying all your wealth, all of your uh, 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 thinking that you're a cultural icon, all the idea that you think that you're in the nation that can't be touched, it could all be evaporated from you if you lose your health. The, the air itself was polluted and caused all these cancers, these seeping wounds on the skin. So nobody wanted to be seen. Nobody felt comfortable anymore. Then he goes with fire and ale. This is a really amazing one. It's a god called Nut. He caused this hail to come down and lightning to strike that would cause fire. The skies that brought rain and ample sunshine would now bring violent storms and they would burn up not the wheat, but the flax and the barley. That was uh, an interesting thing that he was fighting against. The flax was new, used for them to, to make clothes. This was part of their fashion industry. He's like, you pride yourself on looking beautiful. I'm going to take all those things away. And the, and, the, and the barley, what was that used for? It was a fermented libation. Why? It was used in entertainment. See, all these things are good until they become things that we can't live without. They're like St. Augustine would say. It's, it's, it's an issue of, of ultimate needs. Ultimate needs. Remember the story of Jesus when the guy is brought down before him in the room and uh, he sees the guy's crippled on the floor and he looks at the guy in the middle of the floor and he goes, he sees their faith and he goes, son, your sins are forgiven. You remember that story? Why did he forgive his sins when the guy's legs could work? If I'm bringing that guy there, I'd be like, Jesus, thanks for that, but we really brought him here for his legs to get better. 
right? But Jesus knew what his greatest need was. That guy wanted his legs to get better so that he could get back to work. Why did he want to get back to the work? So that he could be his own God again. See, our jobs are gifts. They're wonderful things. Our houses are gifts. They're wonderful things. Living in this country is truly a gift. It is a provision by God. It's a privilege. It's an honor. But when these things become paramount in our life, things that we can't live without, that's when the danger occurs. Because the time may come when God removes these things and we, we're stuck with a decision. Remember how I said walking down that road causes us to keep kind of widening the gap until there comes a point to where I have to choose. Am I on this side or am I on this side? If I cling too tightly to this side, make no mistake, profess Christ or not, you will hop to this side. These are dangerous things that we need to pay attention to. Finally, he brings the locusts. What does that mean? These are hordes that ate up the harvest, but they also consumed the supply houses. The supply houses were the civil welfare of the day. It was a crude pension system. It was the Egyptian social security. You know, I don't know. I mean, we've been talking about our social security system and our pension system. First of all, pensions are a thing of non-existence. We really pride ourselves on the fact that our country has the supreme wealth in the value of our currency. But have you been paying attention that the value of our currency has been declining for quite a few years? I think we have to remember these things. Does that mean we live carelessly, commit our, or quit our jobs, and live in a commune? No, I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is where is my source of trust? Where is my security coming from? Where is my number one investment in what did God ask of Pharaoh? One thing, let my people go for them to worship me in the desert. But Pharaoh said, no, these other things are more important. God attacks all of Egypt's pride and any illegitimate sources of security. He robs, listen, any idolater of comfort, peace, rest, and confidence because they choose to trust in what the world can offer them instead of the creator of the world himself. He robs the idolater of these things because they've entrusted themselves to their own ability to provide a future of their own design rather than to serve and honor the God who is rightfully deserving of devotion and service. I mean, I get it. This is not pleasing to hear but it's something we need to pay attention to. I told you before, I'm not a prophet. Something's coming. And you know what? Can I talk about that, that passion for just a minute? Paul said, I have this burning passion for the church. I feel it. I'm like, I don't want to be the captain of the Titanic. I don't care if the church has 500 people in it, if 490 of them are found to be non-existent in the final roll call. Some critics of God use this, and they despise the Bible. They say the Old Testament is evidence that this is a God of racism and bloodthirst. Why does the entire nation suffer horrific consequences for the actions of one man? I thought that. I was like, why are you hammering the whole nation because of Pharaoh? Well, here's why. Because the Pharaoh is the embodiment of an entire nation. 
He's a perfect representation of a world in rebellion. <laughs> you know, I was at a family party and it turned po- political. Boy, it should never turn political, ever. And um, I realized that my, my views on things were not the views of the people that I grew up with. And um, at the end, what I told my brother was, I think, I think when it's all said and done, I won't talk about politics no more. But I will tell anyone who has a sincere faith in Jesus Christ, better be serious about repentance and better be serious about devotion. And I say that to you as well. You better be serious about repentance because that's what you've been called to. And you better be serious about devotion. That's what eternal life is. World leaders sometimes are a judgment on the nation itself. That's kind of scary when I think of the elder in that sense. Just so that we don't make the mistake of learning about something that happened 3,800 years ago and missing the in, and amassing information without knowledge, because knowledge affects my today. Here's three things that we need to do. Ready? I have to guard my heart against idolatry. What does that mean? First of all, I got to identify what idolatry is. Here's the common one: comfort. Is comfort good? Sure, it's great. Does God want us to have a certain level of comfort? Absolutely. We had a wonderful party yesterday at Mom's. It was comfortable. We had wings. We celebrated our daughter. We laughed. We had coffee. We had drinks, not drinks, soda and stuff like that. Right? We enjoyed each other's company. But once again, I have to understand that even though this is a good thing, it's not the best thing. The best thing. Sometimes following Christ is not Here's another one. You're not going to hear this from many pulpits. If you're really going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, read Matthew chapter 6, 7, and 8. Sometimes your career is going to take second place. I don't make it up, do they? Here's another idol of our day, pleasure. Wonderful. I'm a big party. You know what that's what God rescued me out of? I was the king of pleasure. Everything that was pleasurable, I sought it. And no matter what the cost was, I would pay it. But I know this, the more that I saw pleasure, the more it brought pain and destruction into my life. God says, yes, I want you to be in a place of pleasure. I want you to enjoy the life that I've given you. But I want you to worship me more. Here's another idol of our day, independence. Many times we come to church, but we're not part of it. Why? Because it's too costly. I like my version of salvation. That's dangerous. It's an idolatry. Here's another one. Relational validation. So many people, they forget the true meaning of godly relationship. I'm talking in regards to man and a woman. Because they believe that there is this soulmate, this person is going to fill me and make me complete. No, they won't. You were created to be transformed in your relationship. You were created to show the fullness of God in your relationship. How? By dying to yourself so that you could be the thing that God uses in the life of the other person. When God calls me into marriage, I thought it was for my wife to make me happy. 
Well, I didn't realize nobody can make me happy except the one who created me. And every time I go back into that hell, that stinking thinking that he talks about, I go back to thinking, well, why isn't my wife doing anything about it? And then he's like, I thought, don't, I don't settle this. Tom, nobody's going to make you happy. I can make you happy. And as long as you keep resisting me, I'll rob you of peace. So here's the deal. I could choose to hold on to idols, but God says, then you'll reap the consequences of it. You'll be saved in the end, but I'll take from you the thing that you want most. Here, the last one, financial security. These are good things. We're not saying carelessly in regards to money, but I want you to understand this. Money means nothing when your life is on the line. So here's what we do in a positive way. We must be faith-filled. That means I must maintain an attitude of positive thinking in regards to God. God is in control. That's not scary. That's wonderful. When God says no to me, he's not saying it as a stingy tyrant. Sometimes he's saying it to me like a father who says, Son, you really have no idea what I'm saving you from. When God says to me, I'm watching over you, and I will allow you to go in this direction, but not in that direction, he's saying, I have something better for you. When I'm in the middle of a storm, when I'm in the middle of difficulty, when I have struggles in my life, because we all will, what he's saying is, I am using these things in your life to create Christ in you. You cannot be the diamond that I will enjoy, and you will enjoy with me in heaven forever, unless there's pressure and there's heat. Trust me in the struggle. Trust me in the process. I have to be positive. I must be faith-filled. Man, I'm going through a hard time. I can't believe it. Where's God? He's there. He's there. He's watching. He hears. He hasn't stopped. He's not looking over there or looking over there or falling asleep at the wheel. He is there. And I must maintain these things because if I don't maintain these things, what I will do is I will revert back to the old system of worship. And that's really disappointing. And I don't know about you. You look way more successful than me. That's a bad move. All right, this is our last point, and then we can stand up. We have to guard our hearts against cynicism and against complaining. We have to find more reasons to give thanks rather than to complain. So it's very natural and very easy to do to give thanks. But for me, I'm a natural complainer. Is anyone else with me on this one? All right, we're going to start our own recovery group. <laughs> but every time those words come out of my mouth, I have to stop them. It's my responsibility to go back to the place and say, I will trust you. I believe you are good. I believe that you're using all things for my good because I love you and I have been called to your purpose. I believe that I'm not some sheep to be slaughtered. No, I'm more than a victor. I believe that there's nothing that can separate me from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. I believe that you are the one who started this good work in me, and you are the one who will complete it and see me through to the day of completion. I believe that if I'm going to boast in anything, that I should boast in the cross. Because of the cross, the world is crucified to me and I to it. It holds nothing for me. That's what I have to cling to, and that's what you have to because if you don't, you'll trust in vain. Let's stand up and get ready to worship.
told you this is a difficult thing. But I'm going to tell you this. For as long as God keeps me here, I have to tell you the truth. You know what? I sugarcoat or I spin the truth. I could say I love you, but I don't. I don't love you. We have to hear the truth. God wages war in heaven against all who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. God wages war against the usurpers of what is rightful in grace. Is Jason coming up? Okay. Let's take just you know what we could do? We've got a beautiful time right here. Let's gather people we're with and let's pray. Let's pray against the idolatries of the church. Let's pray against the idolatries of our heart. Let's just take two seconds and pray together. But do we wait for Jason as he starts to play a little bit?